There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. I am your host, Tim McKernan, alongside videographer Nick Yale and executive producer John Seymour, a.k.a. The Sea Monster. So here is what happened with this interview. It's never happened before. Is 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 my guest, former county executive Gene McNary, began answering a question. I began banging my head on the council. This really happened. And I think about that and I think, okay, this is this is a gentleman, an esteemed gentleman, four-term St. Louis County executive, worked in Washington, D.C. under President George H.W. Bush in the Department of Immigration, and he has most likely no idea who I am, and it probably is better that way, actually, uh, based on the content of the radio program I host. And, and, and he's answering a question seriously, and then the gentleman asking the question starts banging his head on the council. That had to have been a very odd moment. So now that I'm playing it back in my head, um, yeah, really, really bizarre. But my guess is you will know the moment when you hear it when I began banging my head on the council because you will want to bang your head on your desk, your pillow, your steering wheel. I wouldn't advise any of it, but I'm just telling you that's what's going to happen because here's the deal. Even those who are older, and by older I mean older than me, uh, I don't know if you ever heard kind of the autopsy of the St. Louis football Cardinals leaving St. Louis. I was familiar with the story, but I was 10 when it happened, so not really well-versed. And I also was not aware that the county executive, our guest today, Gene McNary, was working on an NBA team in addition to keeping the Cardinals here. And, of course, the Blues and baseball Cardinals were already here. And then when you hear what happened to then lead to the Cardinals leaving, that is the moment. That is the moment where you will want to bang your head on the council, the desk, the steering wheel, pillow, put your head in your hands, whatever. That's what's going to happen. I'm just telling you. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Um, Ah, because unlike Stanley Steamer, Crocky, Bidwell wanted to stay here. He wanted to stay here. Now, that's not how it was painted when they left, because the owner that leaves is always the bad guy. But he wanted to stay here. So you're, you're talking about a different situation than uh, the steamer. So uh, that's what you're going to hear. In addition to uh, his time as county executive, but also working in D.C. in the Department of Immigration, we talk about immigration. We kind of get into the weeds. The new phrase du jour of 2018 politics. Talk about political discourse. Talk about St. Louis, the region. Uh, And then his plan. You know, we talk a good amount about the county and the city merging. And I know a lot of people in the county go, that didn't happen, brother. 
And that's fine. That might be your opinion, and you might be right. But Gene McNary has a different idea to divide St. Louis up into boroughs. And we discussed that. And for the record, I did ask, and you will hear, that there is no other American city that he is aware of that has what New York City has and that he's proposing St. Louis have, which is boroughs. But you will hear his reasoning for it. Uh, but really, uh, the, the the talk of the St. Louis football Cardinals and how and why they moved and the backstory on it and in a secret meeting at the MAC and calls from executives and, oh, my God, ah, because you will hear how close, really, when it gets down to it, that St. Louis is, was, whatever verb you want to use, to never even having to deal with the Rams. Uh I I don't know <laughs> I don't know what else to, I didn't know that and then I hear the interview and it was almost better when I didn't know it because it's more depressing and then I didn't even know what the NBA thing I had no idea I I know we we heard back in the day with Bill Laurie about the Grizzlies when they were leaving Vancouver and then they went to Memphis but this is a totally separate deal we're going back to the 1980s here so all of that is coming your way with our interview with the former St Louis County Executive Gene McNary from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Ryan Kelly and his staff at the HomeLoanExpert.com make our podcast possible. Experts are predicting, well, home values are going to continue to rise. And a strong purchase season means there are a lot of good comps for an appraiser to use. Maybe you took out a loan a year ago that required PMI. It's very possible that you now have the equity to get rid of that PMI and lower your payment. Or maybe you can drop the PMI and cut your term to a 15- or 20-year keeping your payment the same. A lot of people think they have a perfect mortgage, but with interest rates as low as they are, there are always options. Call them today to explore your savings or visit thehomeloanexpert.com. You can do all the math right there and you can save money. Great customer service, save money. What else can you ask for? It's thehomeloanexpert.com. So without further ado, here he is, the county executive in St. Louis for four terms plus working under President George H.W. Bush in the Department of Immigration, Gene McNary. Well, Gene, thank you so much for coming in. This is an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I uh, look forward to the discussion. Yeah, this is the, there's so much to get to, but uh, I, want, I want to start with this, how, how you all decided to, to get in, into politics, because you went to, to law school, am I correct? I did. Indiana guy? Indiana. My brother yeah. went to Indiana. My mom went to Indiana. No You're, kidding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got yeah, a com- I looked at it. I looked at it. Common but, bond, but you went to Mizzou? I went to Mizzou, journalism school. Yeah, yeah I see you've still got a Mizzou I still hat. got the Mizzou cap on. Yeah, a lot of people think this is a Michigan cap, but it's the old Missouri no, black no, I, I You recognize them. the black and gold. Yep, yeah. yep. But you grew up in Indiana? And grew up in Indiana, Muncie, Indiana, and uh, went to uh, IU, got a business degree and then a law degree. Okay. Yeah, and then I came to St. Louis, and and you know, people have, uh, have wrapped St. Louis for various reasons, and I tell them that I, I could have gone anywhere. You know, I looked at I wanted to practice law, and I looked at every city around and, and really did some research. St. Louis had the advantage of being major league sports, major league culture, and you could get anywhere in 30 minutes. Yeah. I couldn't find another city that had those advantages. So so you had choices and you chose it. I did. I, and I still would do it again. How about that? How yeah. great is that? But you're, you're working, are you working, you're, you're a law firm coming out of Indiana, is that correct? Yeah, I went with a firm, Lashley, Lashley and Miller. Okay. And, uh, you know, this will kill you. I, I made 350 a month 
And after that's practice, that's a dot and then a zero zero. <laughs> Three hundred fifty a month, and uh, and when I finally uh, quit practicing law, well, I still have a law license, but uh, I quit practicing law. I was making three hundred fifty an hour. <laughs> Where was how the about race? that for transition? <laughs> <laughs> My uh, gosh, three fifty an hour. That's amazing how it works. Uh, so in the nineteen sixties, <clears throat> correct? You decide um, you're interested in public service. Is that about the proper timeline? Yeah, I. I um, Practiced uh, with a law firm for two and a half years, and then I got a job as a public defender. Okay. And uh, I was there about two and a half years and handled 400 felonies, tried a bunch of cases, learned uh, to think on my feet and verbal combat and all that. Yeah. And then the position of prosecuting attorney opened up, uh, and a Republican couldn't win anything at that time, but lightning struck, and uh, I was elected prosecuting attorney. How about and that? served the, in that capacity for eight years, two terms. And then um, Larry Roos, who was county supervisor, which later I changed to county executive, uh, retired. And I ran for county executive and served uh, four terms, 15 years in that position. It's quite a run. Yeah. And, and then um, I had supported uh, Bush the first. Uh, and I had a pretty good organization in St. Louis County. I'd been the chairman for Ford, Missouri chairman, and then tied on with Bush, uh, and he won. And so he took me to Washington. I was a presidential appointee and ran immigration. Uh, fascinating and still is, yes. by the way. Yeah, well, I'll have to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was it like in, in 88 when you, when you moved to, to D.C. and you're working with George H.W. Bush? George H.W. Bush, and uh, he's still my president. He doesn't have any any memory anymore. We went down for a 25-year reunion, and uh, it's kind of sad. You know, he's, uh, he's in a wheelchair, has no memory, but just uh, still the nicest guy you'd ever want to know. That's what everybody who worked with him says, that, that exact line right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Good guy. And, and, you know, the Soviet Union broke up uh, his watch, my watch, uh, and so that was a special challenge. I went to Moscow and and worked for the embassy and in, in um, processing the the people. Fifty thousand people we brought in, and they then went to Rome to, for to be debriefed. You know, we really uh, did a lot of of um, information gathering about the Soviet Union at that time, and then they were they were brought into the U.S. as refugees. Give me your perspective as you're going over to the Soviet Union. It's a time of turmoil over there. And what you see, you go to Moscow and you go to that embassy. What what was it like at that time? Well, it was grim. You know, you don't realize. I think we tend to and still believe Moscow is more European rather than Asian. But it was, uh, you know, communism. It, It doesn't work. And... The stores, the, sh- the shelves were empty, and people struggled. I, nobody smiled. It happened to be in the winter, which is even worse. I'd been to Mo- I've been to Moscow several times since then in the spring, and it's beautiful. The winter is tough. Yeah, yeah and so they were suffering, and there were and most of the Jews at that time uh, had a special notation or even a special passport. So they were specially identified and treated, which amounts to persecution. And our our law provides that 
if you have a well-founded, if you're persecuted or a well-founded fear of persecution based on religion, uh, race, nationality, political opinion, uh, then you qualify for refugee status. And these people were uh, were interviewed and they qualified. Uh, <clears throat> and so they came in as refugees. Uh, refugees uh, he, he, under... Under Obama and George W. Bush and Clinton, the roughly 50,000 a year, and we'll bring them in from all over uh, the world. Uh, but w- during my three years, we brought in over 100,000 a year because um, the Soviet Union had broken up, and you have Romanians, Bulgarians, uh, Serbians, Croatians, uh, the Balkans. A lot of those people, plus uh, Russians. Yeah, and we see a large Bosnian community here in South St. Louis. We do. That came a little later, and that was religious, you know, and the, and those people are Muslims, and they're good Muslims. They're good people. They're good St. Louis. Mm-hmm. That's been a 10 strike mm-hmm. for St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the funny thing is um, we brought in 7,000. A lady named Anna Crossland is really to be applauded uh, because she oversaw that uh, uh, that influx of Bosnians and we treated the Bosnians so well and they they blended into our community and became an asset that we they, they told their friends who had been scattered around the United States and then we they moved here yeah. and we wound up with 70,000 of them, you know, amazing? and they've just been a real asset uh, to St. Louis. This immigration issue in 2018, <clears throat> it is obviously uh, one of the most hot button topics. How much regarding the discourse with immigration that you now see in the national scope is similar to what you experience and how much is different well, that's a good question. We could spend the, the whole time on that. <laughs> but um, it's very comparable and is really the place to start. When I came in, I started in 89. And in 86, Reagan was president. And Reagan um, brought in what was called IRCA, Immigration Reform and Control Act. And it had... Uh, it was a three-legged stool, one, to legalize people who were here illegally and had been here for five years, as I recall. And then we had employer sanctions. First time there were sanctions against employers mm-hmm. who hired illegals. And then we were going to beef up the uh, southwest border security. Same issues today. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, at that time, we legalized three million illegals, and there was a feeling that <clears throat> the the people who qualified would not come into INS, Immigration Nationality uh, Service, Naturalization Service, uh, because they'd be afraid to. They weren't at all, and they aren't now. If if we pass something on the Dreamers uh, or other illegal aliens. They will come forward and take their chance on whether or not uh, they qualify for um, legal status. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, I had to oversee that part of the program, even though it started in 86. Most of the paperwork came in on my sure, watch. on 89, yeah. Yeah. 
Now, at that time, this is kind of an interesting comparison. I had 4,000 Border Patrolmen. I had a Border Patroller in my command. I had 4,000. Today, there are 25,000 Border Patrolmen. Um, we so you had four. There's now 25,000. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, sounds as though they could almost be shoulder to shoulder <laughs> along that border. But yeah. uh, Forget but, the wall. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, but now, you know, it's been increased over the years, and, and we had sensors um, uh, which were effective on the southwest border. They weren't effective on the northern border because the moose and the elk would drip them, and uh, <laughs> it was ineffective. But um, uh, that was the, the objective, and, and at that time, I was almost leaving in 92, uh, and we had a uh, plan that showed that we could have shut down that southwest border for $60 million. Now they're talking about $18 billion, you know. But but at, at that time, yeah, there are 12 corridors. Uh, part of it uh, is desert. Mm-hmm. And so there are areas where uh, you don't have to worry about it. And Trump, Trump knows that, and, he, and he's talking about 700 miles of a wall. Uh, he, he really knows what he's doing, right down to saying, which people scoff at, that the Mexicans are going to pay for it. The way, the way he does that is with uh, NAFTA, and and it's there's such an imbalance on NAFTA that he can work a deal with the Mexicans that will free up the money for that wall. Now the Mexicans will say, well, I don't have anything to do with NAFTA, mm-hmm. but Trump's in a position to say. They actually paid for it because we reordered uh, that balance on trade. So I think all of that can uh, can fall in place. Do you? So when you hear talk about the wall, which which certainly is a polarizing topic, as somebody who can actually speak from the experience you have, is a is a wall a solution? Yeah, well, wall. Plus, now you've got drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the areas, you still need something, even in the areas where there's a desert, we call them bollards. And those are big concrete uh, posts that stop a car from coming through. Now, I think there's bollards along a lot of that border, but, but that needs to be uh, in place. Let me tell you one anecdote that I think is significant. Um, the Border Patrol, uh, they're... San Isidro and Otay Mesa uh, between uh, San Diego and Tijuana. Mm-hmm. 3,000 people ran back and forth across that border every day. The Border Patrol, they're, they're not lawyers and accountants like the FBI. They're really former Marines. So you don't expect them to have that much ingenuity. I mean, they, they're just tough guys who do their jobs. But they did have the ingenuity to go over to the North Island Naval Base and get some old landing mats. And they put those landing mats vertically. And we, the State Department, which was a pain in the neck, State Department wouldn't let us uh, uh, build a fence. But we could repair the trampled down fence. And so the Border Patrol put these landing mats uh, along that border between San Diego and Tijuana, mm. and it didn't stop the young men. 
because they'd get in under the gulches, uh, mm-hmm. but it stopped the women and children. And so the women and children started rushing the port of entry at Otay Mesa, right, right where the cars come through. They they would run through. Oh, my gosh. And so I met with the Border Patrol. And I said, you know, we can't tolerate this. What are you going to do? They said, well, Caltrans, California Transportation, they wouldn't help them at all. So we're going to build a funnel with Border Patrol cars, bumper to bumper, and then when they run through, we'll catch them at the end. I said, well, that's got to be the most archaic thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And so I went to Otay Mesa, and I met with my Mexican friends, counterparts, and I I said, now, this is what we're going to do, and I'll tell you what's going to happen. Traffic's going to back up for 50 miles, and you're going to be on worldwide television like you've never been embarrassed before. And I'm going to give you 24 hours to stop this. Well, Mexican justices don't do it or will shoot you. It only took four hours, and it stopped. Now, the significance of that is that if the Mexicans want to help us, and respect the fact that we are a sovereign nation and not just run back and forth across our backyard, then together we can shut down that border and it's to everybody's benefit because, you know, the Mexicans don't want the Guatemalans and the El Salvadorans and the Hondurans coming through Mexico either. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're worried about their southern border. But I think Trump knows that. I wish I was there advising him. But uh, <laughs> but but that, that's the way that you can bring that s- southwest border under control. When people talk about dreamers, uh, obviously, what seems anyway to be a complex issue. How do you how do you view that? Well, I view that that uh, I was part of the problem when when I uh, had Urca uh, to deal with the uh, the three million people, mostly male, and they had wives and children back in Mexico. Um, And I said, and I got credit for this, good or bad, I said, you know, since we've legalized those people, their family, immediate family should be uh, able to come in and join them. And that was called family fairness. Uh, Family fairness, obviously, that doubled or more the number of people that actually came in um, and led, the reason I say I was part of the problem, probably that led to the problems we have today. Not uh, There were a lot of other things beyond me that mm-hmm. contributed to it. But, you know, we now we've got 11 million people. And, and part of it, uh, I read a good article in the Wall Street Journal recently uh, by a former uh, consulate, embassies who it was scathing about how you know they're letting people come in on on visas that shouldn't be given the visa because they know they're not going to go back so now we have they say half of the people that are here illegally came in legally came in with a visa that needs to be brought under control and another thing that's in the in the works, in a reform, total reform package, is uh, exit control. We don't know who leaves. Now, how they have determined that 
there's five, six million people here who came in legally with visas. Uh, how they can say there's that many people, I don't know, because yeah. we don't know, right. know actually who left. And that would be a part of a, a – when you go to another country, you know, you, you – uh, you show your passport going in, your visa, and then coming out, they check you off yeah. that you left. Yeah. And they've got a record, if you don't leave, that uh, should enable them to locate you and make sure that you do leave. We don't have that. And that's a that's a part of reform that uh, uh, should be done, among a bunch of other things, if you want to talk about it. Of course. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I observe... <clears throat> And Jack Danforth's been a regular on both the radio show and the podcast. And he says the thing that stands out to him in 2018 versus when he arrived in D.C., and I think it was 75 or 77, uh, as the Missouri U.S. senator, that people have a really tough time working together now. The rhetoric is much more harsh. You could be penalized if you reach across the aisle. How would you characterize things when you were in D.C., and then even to, to apply it to when you were county executive? Oh, my. Well, they, in, in D.C., Jack is right. Um, but, you know, politics has become mean. Even the, the campaigns now, um, the law is that a public figure really has no recourse for libel or slander. Uh, you have to prove malice. And, Which is brutal to try and do. Yeah. They're, they're, and so, um, in my opinion, that's kind of led uh, to uh, to a lot of false statements and accusations, and it's just become a mean political campaign. Well, then it when it carries over uh, to the elected officials, it, it's polarizing, and the media, you know, I hate to tell you, the media is a part of it because the media has has become more more nationally, more and more left wing and almost to the part to the point of being a part of the Democratic Party. You know, they're just not interested at all in uh, being objective. It used to be that the front page, the news was objective Mm -hmm. and. The uh, the editorial page and op-ed was opinion, you know, and and there, it was almost uh, they taught that in the journalism school. I, I, that's I, the way I remember him. Now the it's virtually all of it opinion, and they don't uh, make an effort to um, separate uh, the news and be objective about that news. When did you see that? Did you notice a time? I feel like I noticed that happening again. I was in my 20s at the time, but in, in the 90s, late 90s, I felt like that's when I noticed it. Now I happen to be at the University of Missouri Journalism School, and as a guy from St. Louis who was interested in sports casting, but yet in with a bunch of people who were looking to practice news reporting, yeah. I was aware that clearly the vast majority of my classmates were already coming from things from a perspective on the left. So that's that's one of the top journalism schools, and that's... It, that's, it sure is. That's, that's and, where they are, you know? Yeah, Mizzou is been a part of the right. problem, so Mizzou, yeah, I mean, depending on your viewpoint. Yeah, yeah so, so, but then I, I look at it, and, I'm, I, and, you know, Jim Talent sat in that chair, and he said something very similar 
to what you're saying. Um, and what I feel like now, because I'm curious, because Jack Danforth said one of the biggest problems is media consumption. Um, I saw President Obama say this on David Letterman's interview show, the new show that David Letterman's doing. He said, if you watch Fox News and I watch NPR or I listen to NPR, we are living in two different worlds. He wasn't disparaging the worlds. He's just saying you're getting one side and the other person listening to NPR is getting the other side. And so when we try to have a discussion about it, I think your facts are wrong and you think my facts are wrong. But I don't think that's the way that it was. Again, I realize I was my teens and my 20s, so my memory wouldn't be fair to compare it to now. But I feel like that changed. I don't, I don't know. It's no, I think you're when. right. I think you're right. And now we've we've reached the point. Uh, and, and again, I go to lifelong learning and then current events. It's uh, 90 percent Democrat. And uh, I like that because I'm the resident uh, All right. <laughs> disturber. You know, or, and, and You're so, the anarchist. Yeah, now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But but we tend to Fox Fox um, is conservative and Republican. Uh, and of course, Obama cited Fox as being in a different uh, universe. But he said NPR is a different universe, too. That was his point. He wasn't trying to. He was drawing to, a contrast. Right. That's that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now the contrast would be CNN, I guess. And, and I've Fox. noticed that. And what I notice now is I feel like they recognize that there are dollars in the divisions. It, it, there's dollars in, in mocking or covering President Trump, whether yeah. one likes or dislikes. If you like, you can go to Fox News if you dislike. And I don't feel like CNN was always like that. But recently they see that there's all of this backlash to President Trump from a healthy percentage of the population, and therefore they're going to capitalize on that and monetize it. Right. And that, to me, strikes me as a real, real problem. Well, and in that vein, um, it's a problem, and the polarizing is because I watch Fox, and my Democrat friends won't watch Fox. They they get the, a steady stream of liberal uh, news, and so they believe that. Right. I believe something else, and we don't ever see anything that uh, is right. in the middle or uh, breaks through uh, right. the stereotypes. We can't argue two and two equals four, yeah. but when it comes to politics, that's what it is. And the, way, and the thing is, now I see it, you know, from doing what I do, that all it takes is just a certain way to frame a story or a graphic that comes across. And I see it on these social media feeds. I'm just like, God, I see what they're doing, whether it be Fox or whether it be CNN. And so, therefore, a conversation is difficult to have take place. Yeah. So that's why I wonder, you know, how it happened. But, therefore, what, what you dealt with, because it was a different time, I would think a better time, where you could – communicate and get things done more effectively, I think. I well, don't know. Oh, no, no, there's no question about it. You know, I ran against Tom Eagleton and uh, for the U.S. Senate in 1980, came close, but I got beat. And Tom and I were friends uh, after that. Uh, we were friends before. And even during that cam- campaign, Tom had a lot of personal problems. And I didn't mention them ever. You know, we stayed on the issues and talked uh, about what was he had a I, I tried to wrap uh, double digit inflation and unemployment and all that around his neck. Uh, but uh, those were issues. Right. You know, we didn't talk about personal problems. You didn't get into. And today. Yeah. You know, here they uh, Trump 
Trump has to bring his doctor out to show that he passed a brain test and, uh, and his heart's okay. And still they say, well, obviously uh, he's, he can't even trust the doctors anymore. <laughs> Overall, are you a fan of his? or you, I am. You I like Trump. I liked him going in. I thought to myself, "Did you like him during the, when they had sixteen candidates up there? Was that the guy you liked, or do you wind up eventually?" At, at, let me tell you that first, I thought that he's a joke. There's no way this guy's going to be. A, he won't last a month. The more I listened to him, the more I could see he was touching a very important American trait, and and that was that we're losing the character of the country. You know, we – I heard a guy, one of these occupiers who was in Chicago say, well, it's up to the federal government to take care of us, and they're not doing a very good job of it. Well, you know, that's not America. I mean, we're, we're opportunity and individual freedom and individual responsibility. Trump tapped into that. He tapped into that uh, make, it with make America great again because uh, a lot of people, including me, felt as though – yeah, we're not what we used to be. Mm-hmm. We were apologizing. Obama apologized for us uh, too much. He tapped into that, and then he tapped into technology to the point that, you know, at that time he had, he's got even more now, 26 million. Well, that's more than the New York Times and the Washington Post put together. So they could say whatever they wanted to him and about him, but he built his own network, nobody had ever done that before. And so as we went through and he stood on his feet and he counterpunched, you know, he really didn't go after anybody unless they went after him. Uh, Now, somebody pointed out an incident where he took the initiative, but even that I don't think I agreed with. Um, But most of the time somebody took a shot at him and he would fire back and he fired back. With the tweets, um, that was effective. And then the the media and the Democratic Party kind of got tied up uh, in started believing the things that they had been saying to themselves. And echo chamber. Yeah, the the polls show Trump losing by four points on election day. Um, They they had bad polling. Bad uh, uh, handle on the campaign, didn't go to those northern uh, uh, states, and Trump saw they were there for the taking because Hillary was not magnetic. Her husband was. Obama was. Hillary was not. And those – I've always thought that the working unions ought to be Republican. Mm -hmm. You know, half the people go to work these days and half of them don't. Those guys go to work and uh, I can see the government unions and the teachers unions still being Democrats. But those carpenters and uh, steel workers and those guys uh, could be Republicans and they're not tied up in the social issues. The Democrats harp on uh, transgender and pro-choice and uh, the environment and, you know, the the air doesn't smell very good when you don't have a job. And and Trump tapped into that, and he, he carried those northern states. And I think I'm, 
I'm speaking as a Republican, you can tell. I think we may keep them. I think there may be a paradigm shift yeah, I, between the parties now. I'm really I'm fascinated yeah. to see what happens. Granted, it's a few years away. Uh, a couple of pieces of data. Uh, you know, he's always been hovering around 39 percent approval ranking where that will go. You know, it's up to 45. It's I up to 45. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess it depends on where you're looking at, as we were saying. But then we did a poll of our listeners on, on our we have a Facebook fan page on our radio show. About a thousand people voted. And I asked this question on the on the one year anniversary of his inauguration. Uh, how would you describe yourself if you voted in November 2016? Voted for Trump. Glad that I did. Voted for Trump. Regret that I did. Didn't vote for Trump. Glad that I did not vote for him. Didn't vote for Trump. Regret not voting for him. And I would say about 98 percent didn't change their view. Yeah. In one year. Um, I think that's accurate. I, I think his base is still solid. Um, and, you know, his, his going from 39 to 45 is a reflection, in my opinion, of a good economy. The, the tax cuts, I was worried uh, about, as the Democrats were projecting, that the, the corporation would just buy back stock. Um, and I was afraid of that. That's not happening. I mean, the paychecks are going to get bigger, mm-hmm. and they already are. And to the extent that people get bigger pay and there are more jobs, that's going to speak well for Trump. And and it's also an advantage that there are 10 states where Trump carried them big, like Missouri, where there's a Democrat senator up. Mm-hmm. And and so I'd be surprised if if Republicans lost the Senate. And my guess is we'll even gain some senators, maybe not up to 60, but uh, gain some Senate seats. The the, um, the House seats, you know, Democrats feel as though there's a big change and there are more Democrats than Republicans, and I believe that. But those those are smaller, 435 of them, and, and the incumbent has a big advantage. So I don't know that that's... That's going to change either. I think this, this uh, midterm may be good for the Republicans, especially if, uh, you know, Trump can start some infrastructure and and the economy continues to be good. Um, it's going to be a, a good record to run on. I think as simple as this is, and perhaps it's unfair, I don't know. Uh, I think if, I think, this is a theory, if President Trump carried himself, and I'm talking about not necessarily the content of his words, but the manner with which he conveys his words, like, for example, whether it be you, whether it be Jack Danforth, whether it be President Obama, President Reagan, whoever you would want to cite that was, quote unquote, whatever it means, it's arbitrary, but presidential. And then they would see people would see what's going on with the economy that some people who otherwise did not vote for him could buy in. But because of the manner with which he conducts himself, I think a lot of people will never give him a chance. I think that's right. I think that's right. But also, <clears throat> based on my political experience, I think that uh, it, there's there's a factor where a Democrat will not vote for a Republican, but he won't vote. And to the extent that the Democrat is not uh, energized, that helps the Republican Party. And, oh, yeah. Well, that, and, that was, was in November 2016. Yeah, no question yeah, about it. Yeah.
Hope you're enjoying our conversation. Gene McNary and I here on the Tim McKernan Show. Our sponsors make the show possible. Support the sponsors. Ask yourself a question. What's my insurance company doing for me? Then go check them out on Google and Facebook and see what they're doing for others in your community. My guess is they're not doing what James Carlton of the James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency can do for you. 314-961-4800. 314-961-4800. And if you're in front of your computer right now while listening, go to this address. Carlton Insurance. Dot net. Go there right now and just get a quote to see what they can do for you. They have so many positive reviews on Facebook and on Google, you won't believe it. Why are people so excited about getting insurance? It's not really that exciting. Well, they get excited about James Carlin because he makes it so easy. Prides himself on customer service, delivers. 314-961-4800 or online at carltoninsurance.net. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton, State Farm. Yeah, we, we did a poll, same place, Facebook, and I recall the question was, and again, obviously total hypothetical because it wasn't realistic. If these were your choices uh, to vote before November 2016, uh, who would you vote for? Barack Obama, obviously couldn't, but Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and then all of the third-party candidates. Barack Obama won comfortably. Trump finished in second, and Hillary Clinton finished like below Gary Johnson. Is that right? And, and I yeah. was like, wow, that's that's saying something. I didn't mean, that think it meant that Trump would win, but I'm like, that's yeah. saying something that that, few, that that many people will vote for Obama, but hardly anybody would vote for Hillary Clinton. So it speaks to what you just said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing element of, of a political community. And you're still, so you're going to school now, which I think is just <laughs> the greatest thing ever. And because... I mean, I would I would do anything to go back to like my senior year at Missouri and just pay attention, <laughs> yeah. you know, now I would take advantage of it. So that's exactly what you're doing. So you're studying genetics. Yeah, I am this time. But, uh, you know, as I told you, uh, uh, there's a the book is called Genetics for Dummies, and I don't even qualify as a dummy. I don't. <laughs> I, but, but it's a fascinating subject. And, you know, stem cells and. Uh, and this cloning, which now apparently is uh, is happening in China, is fascinating to me. And and I've read some books. How we got to now is one, and Sapiens is another. You know, life as we know it's only 150 years old. I mean, if you think about what's happened, and, and we're we're developing at an increasing rate, um, and so. To project ahead, and part of that is genetics, um, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the his- history part of it, you know, I started at the beginning of France and gone through all the way uh, – up and read a book on Napoleon. He was a heck of a guy. <laughs> I like that. That was Jack Buckus. Heck of a year. Napoleon, heck of a guy. <laughs> yeah. And so all of that's been fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Baroque and um, a guy named Caravaggio. You ever hear of Caravaggio? I have not. I have not. Now you're mentioning people. I'm, I'm familiar with Napoleon, not uh, these people. Caravaggio was a artist. And even killed somebody, and he died at age 39. But he uh, he was the one who really got away from the religious part, even though the Pope loved him, uh, and he did religious stuff. But but he'd have he'd have Christ and and Matthew and another apostle 
in a an Italian bar. You know, he he made it current, and he had a painting with uh, uh, John the Baptist. You know, who lost his head, mm-hmm. and he, uh, he's holding his head. Only it's Caravaggio's face. You know, <laughs> and so this this led to a period uh, that then carried on until the classical part. Uh, for a couple hundred years, and he he was the guy who started. Well, all that's kind of fascinating to me, sure. the historical aspect. Why why did you decide to go back to school? I think it's so cool. I, I'm like, think it's the greatest thing. I have to tell you, <laughs> when John Seymour here told me that's what you're doing, I'm like, oh my god, that's so great. Yeah, well, you know, I've always uh, I've always felt as though I didn't know how much I didn't know, <laughs> and uh, and so this is this is a great program, but old people and. Uh, good discussions, and, and there's a lot of experience uh, that people have had. So that you know, Wall Street uh, last Monday, a guy who was a commodore in the Navy uh, spoke ab- about these two naval ships that were sunk because of the ne- negligence of the captains. You know. Uh, and he had maps to show where they were and how it all happened. You know, those are things you don't get out of the newspapers right. and out of the news. So it's valuable mm-hmm. and, and fascinating stuff. Well, the reason I bring it all up is you are still, you know, locked in, so to speak. And what you brought up, was it last year or two years ago regarding the seven boroughs? Yeah. Really got some attention. And I think what has happened here locally, and I'm curious what you think, uh, somebody who clearly has a, a pulse of, of St. Louis doing what you did, but be still being locked in, is that with the Rams leaving and with the MLS vote failing, there is now an acknowledgement from perhaps people who otherwise were saying everything is fine, that clearly something is amiss. And so your idea at least got the discussion going as yeah. a plan as opposed to, yeah, just be nice if the city and county would merge. So before we even get into it, if you could, uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with what you were discussing, the, your your idea of the boroughs. All right. Well, you and Frank Cusimano are the two guys who who see the sports uh, aspect to this. Um, it, it was not, uh, I guess, the original op-ed piece and my son and I worked on it. Yeah, he, yeah. We had a. He, he went to lunch, and when when I was county executive, um, the the planning department uh, drew up a map that reduced the number of municipalities in St. Louis County from ninety two down to twelve, God. and it was well done. Uh, it was later we had a board of freeholders that made the mistake of increasing it up to thirty four. Then it couldn't be defended because. Charlotte Hills would survive and molding eight acres got eliminated. You know, there wasn't any way to defend it, whereas, whereas it was a rational plan at 12. Mm-hmm. Well, when I had lunch with my son, he pulled out a map and I said, that looks like my map, only it's got fewer munis. Where'd you get that? He said, those are the council districts. I said, wow, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? <laughs> And so we took those council districts, there are seven, uh, and they're already apportioned, 143,000 each. And then uh, I said, Cole, that's his name, why don't you find out where the middle of the population is in the city of St. Louis? I always thought it would be down 40, 64. Right. 
Well, it's not. It's down 44. Huh. Because the north has lost people, depressed areas. So there are more people in the south than there are in the north. But the advantage is that the central west end and downtown would be in the north. And that improves that tax base. And and then the, the council districts have some natural advantages. You know, Kirkwood and Webster Groves play football turkey day. Of course. Uh, but uh, they'd be in different boroughs. And so South County would be a borough. Uh, there's a bunch of neighborhoods there now, you know, you know, Lima and Afton and Melville. Where do you live? You I live, live in Kirkwood, about a mile Kirkwood. from here. Yeah. yeah. I keep my commute short. You got Concord and, yeah, that's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Concord and Oakville and Melville. You know, there's a bunch of them, and yet they're all unincorporated. And so uh, they've talked uh, – I went down there 20 years ago. They were talking about incorporating, and I said, well, the good news is that you'd be in charge of your own destiny. The bad news is you'd be in charge of your own destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do you really want a government on top of uh, county government or underneath county government? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, this map would uh, create nine boroughs, and then the beauty of it, Rather than just a city-county merger, now, some would like to, to see the city enter the county. I don't believe that can pass because that— first You don't think the people of the county would vote yay? To no, they wouldn't uh, they don't, because they'll say, well, we're just taking in the city's problems. Um, and and, uh, and that just add another city to the county and would even put the city in a position to annex Lima. Now, they'd take a vote, but Lee May wouldn't even like that idea. Uh, and so the idea would be that they, you'd have a mayor and a council in each borough. Uh, you'd have a police chief and a fire chief. You'd reduce the number of munis to nine. Mm-hmm. You'd, re- you'd reduce the number of police departments to nine. The number of fire departments and police departments, uh, 64 to nine. 43 fire companies to nine, 82 municipal courts to nine, and then you would have the mayor of each borough be on a council of mayors, which would take on something of a legislative function. Hmm. They'd be the mayor. You'd still have local government, still close to the people, know the cop cop on the beat, so to Uh, speak, uh. And, and yet you'd have a regional umbrella, and then... The police board would be the nine police chiefs. Fire, you'd have a fire board. We've got fire departments now that couldn't fight a big fire, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy who rides the uh, the pumper on the back of the pumper out in, in Chesterfield makes over $100,000. <laughs> you know, so there's some things that need to be fixed. And uh, Better Together has not advocated anything. I, I'm told that they m- might. Um but they found that we waste – they've documented that we waste $750 million a year uh, just on duplication and waste that uh, is unnecessary. My judgment is it's over a billion a year, you know. Uh, and, and we've got accreditation problems. The point is that if, you, if you've got a uh, council of mayors, they would hire a CEO. He'd be like a city manager, manager but a CEO. It's all nonpartisan. 
We take politics out of it, make make it a business-like operation, and uh, you'd have control of the airport. Uh, Shamel has come up with a pretty good idea, which is a trailing liability fund that the city would establish um, because they've got assets like the port and the airport, mm-hmm. and he would even add to the fund in certain ways. So that if the city came up with some liabilities, the county part of it would be held harmless. Hmm. And hmm. that's uh, that needs to be refined, but it, but it's not a bad idea. It, it would give us a – we'd still have local government, bigger governments to be sure, but um, we'd be tied together. And then the tax base, there's no reason – there will be reasons advanced, and I, you know, I've heard them. But um, sales tax, people shop everywhere. You know, that's not tied to your locale. And I would divide, I would pool the sales tax, divide it nine ways, and that would cover basic services. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the property tax stays with the boroughs. Uh, the casinos are scattered around, so. There's one in Maryland Heights. That yeah. would be in a borough. That's a uh, excellent revenue source. There's one down in South County, mm-hmm. Riverport. Right. That, that uh, River City, yeah. River City would be uh, excellent, and um, and so those casinos can be figured in. A lot of work to be done on revenue and expenditure, but um, but just the basics of it lend itself to that kind of a restructuring. If Better Together comes up with just a a merger of city and county into one big St. Louis, then uh, I don't think that can pass. But I like it. I like that idea because it kind of puts my plan into a fallback position where I'd say, well, maybe people would buy this because it keeps government close to the people and – we're not just uh, taking in the city. We know about, of course, New York City and the boroughs. Are there any cities around the country that have something similar? To no, this? no, but around the world there is. And I happened to go to the Balkans a couple of years ago, uh, and and uh, Bucharest, Romania, of all places. Wow, they had a similar. I think there were eight. Uh, they called them something else, but they were boroughs, and then they. They uh, fed into a uh, umbrella type of regional yeah. agency. Yeah, that's the only one that I know of. Yeah, but I, I'm sure there are. Sure. Some yeah, I was just curious. I was missing one. We've heard here recently. I mean, when you were the county executive, uh, I, I just I feel like St. Louis was different then. I'm talking about the region. I grew up. I grew up in the city. Uh, I live in Kirkwood now. I felt like it was different. I felt like if anything, we were looking toward Chicago, and now we're like, oh, if we can catch up with Nashville and Louisville and even Kansas City. Uh, Tom Stillman was in that chair last week, uh, the, the, the general partner of the Blues, and he was talking about how if you are a business around the country or around the world and you see how the Blues have been treated over the last year or so with two lawsuits he deemed as frivolous, and you're considering moving to St. Louis, and you look at how he was treated by the Board of Aldermen and by the Comptroller, that he said, you would never come here because we eat our young. He's passionate about it. Um, a lot of people are are wondering what happened 
But I don't know how many people have really put forth outside of yourself and those with better to the other an idea to try and fix it. What do you think happened? I tried to keep the football cardinals, remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to get into that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we could have done it. Schroeder did a feasibility study, uh, and we we were in a position – that was Riverport – where we would build a dome stadium. It was going to be a dome stadium. Yeah, it was going to be domed because we needed another franchise. We needed either a basketball franchise or a hockey franchise. And, and I'd worked it out. They were willing to uh, sell the Blues for $26 million, But the, the advantage was we felt we could do it without any tax dollars because we were – Riverport was floodplain and – uh, we had a road that had gone in there that served as a levee, and, and if we build another levee, which was going to happen, then we've opened up this vast area of revenue-producing property. Mm-hmm. And that led to the feeling and the, and the bottom line that we could live off of those revenues. It would be all privately owned and no tax dollars going into it. And then it got to the point where the city, and originally, shame on I had flown to Jeff City to testify on something, and on a plane going back, we both knew that Bidwell was talking about leaving, and I said, Vince, find a place in the city, and let's try to keep that team here. And he, he said he would, and I said, I'll support you. And then... He came back to me and he said, we can't do it. We just don't have a site that will do anything but take away businesses that we've got. And he said he would support me. Well, then we went out and did a site uh, study. And there were about six sites. And the most obvious was Riverport. And came back with that plan. And, and Vince was for it. And then city utilities and some corporations and the banks decided that they couldn't let that happen. And so Vince called me and he said, I'll meet you down at MAC. We went to had a private room and he said, I got to renege. I said, no, you don't. He said, well, they told me that if I might as well kiss my political career goodbye if I did this because the city couldn't stand it. And so I said, well, I mean, you're big enough and you're going to run statewide. You can do it. But he, he felt as though he couldn't. And so he, then he came out against it. He bid $26 million and won for the arena oh. uh, and the blues. And I went to uh, New York and met with the uh, president of the NBA at that time. They said they'd like to have a, a team here. Expansion kind of, team? Yeah, kind of surprised me. Oh, gosh. They'd like to have I, a team. I have to tell you, I hate hearing all of this right now. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. And, and, and it was better you know, not was, knowing this. Well, and it was uh, uh, it was kind of funny because what that's... Year, what do you, and they moved well, in 87, so probably mid-80s, I guess. Is this fair when this was going on? Mid-80s. The NBA expanded in 88. About uh, 85. Charlotte, about, Miami, I think, then. Yeah. Well, and, and NBA uh, took in San Antonio. They, they had a franchise. I think we probably could have had that franchise. Wow. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I just want to bang my well, head. Well, and, and, and Frank Cusimano was hot about soccer. Soccer's a St. Louis sport. And his uh, point was, and I hadn't thought about this, that uh, 
it, it, had it not just been carried by the city and the county had a right to vote on it, it would have passed. Now, you believe I, that? You believe that it would have passed? I, after talking to Frank, I do. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, there's enough. Because I talked to Dave Peacock, and he said their polling indicated that it would not pass if they included the county. No kidding. Yeah, which I I don't know if I could say I'm surprised or not. I just I wanted yeah. to make sure I, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago, and he said he didn't think it would pass if it went to the county. You know, let me give you an anecdote, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, I used to since I went to Indiana. Indiana was a soccer school, and they got a lot. Oh of, yeah, got a lot of their kids out of here. Yeah, my, my, my St. Louis U High. Yeah. We had all kinds go there and play soccer. And so uh, they, I think this was mid '80s, and uh, Clemson beat Indiana in the finals. Half of each team came from St. Louis. Oh, so really? I had all those guys. Yeah, I had them all into my conference room. We declared St. Louis Soccer Day. <laughs> that was great fun. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That, gosh, I didn't realize. I knew that the the, the card. So did, did Bidwell come to you guys and say, I'm moving? How did it all? No, Bidwell uh, invited Shamal and I in. So he and, talked as opposed to Stan Crocky. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Bill, I, I liked Bill. I still like Bill. He was kind of up against it with the league because the league felt as though there ought to be a 60,000-seat stadium. Well, Did they want football only? Was that an important thing? Because Bush Stadium at the time, baseball and football? That was a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, he didn't like playing in the Cardinals stadium. And when he started, it wasn't. And then the, and then the yeah, Cardinals right. bought it. That's right. And though, so, you know, he called... Uh, Gussie Bull Moose. Uh, he said, <laughs> "I remember hearing this." <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, he he wanted his own stadium, and uh, and and Vince and I talked to him about it, and that's that what led to the discussions that Vince and I had to try to find a site. Oh. And so eventually, it, it was going to be Riverport. I mean, you had identified what you say six different potential sites in St. Louis County. Well, and then then we selected Riverport. what's now Riverport. Okay, yeah. And so, okay, let's say we bought. Yeah, we bought the ground. We had a hundred acres out there that uh, would have facilitated. We had a rendering of the dome, and um, I still had that rendering. I don't know anymore. I don't know what happened to it. Oh, I kept it for a long time, oh. and then you know. Bidwell liked it. He liked it. So yeah. let's just say, I'm just playing this out because I want to understand this as well as I possibly can. Let's say that Vince Shamel doesn't get that call from the city bankers, the utilities, and he does back your plan for where Riverport is now. Do you think the Cardinals are still in St. Louis? Absolutely. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that uh, we could have done it. I went to Vancouver. Vancouver at that time had a facility where they they could even get 100,000 people into for they'd stand up to hear Billy Graham or, or the Pope. Um, but then they could move the seats around in such a way that was it was kind of the state of the art in such a way. Uh, they would motors place. I think that is that still the building you're talking about? Vancouver? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah have that, you? Yeah. yeah. Well, th- those seats kind were of looks all, like the Superdome, the New Orleans Superdome, if my memory serves. Well, oh, it can be. Yeah. Or they can move the seats around in such a way that it's more of a hockey r- arena or a basketball right. court. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we c- that would have uh, been what we would do. You know, and we knew that there was $13 million in concessions going in that they bid on that. Um, and so, you know, the revenue stream and the expenses, all of that uh, showed that this was very doable. 
And Bidwell, and here's one other factor. <clears throat> you say would it, and I said absolutely. I'm not sure that, that that's right because Bidwell got mad. These same banks and utilities downtown uh, told him they weren't going to buy his skyboxes. And, and that's when he—that's when he kind of blew up and right. said he was going to leave. Why did they say they weren't going to buy a skybox if he had moved out to Riverport? Yeah. Oh, so they really played a large role in this. That was hardball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you were talking with the NBA as well about one of those teams moving into the building in Riverport. Yes, uh, and I think it's a team that went to San, San Antonio. Antonio. Yeah, we could have had either one. We couldn't have had both. Uh, well, maybe we could have both. Uh, that'd be so a logistics would have been the Cardinals problem. and or is that what you're saying? Yeah, or? It'd be a okay. football team and a hockey or basketball team. Got it. No reason we, if we had a windfall, we wound up with basketball team and a hockey uh, team. Yeah, and uh, the Cardinals and the we Cardinals. Could, that, the, the dome would have accommodated that. Yeah. Whether uh, whether they could uh, draw the fans, I don't know. Yeah. You know, those just kind of compete the same yeah. season, but other other uh, cities do it. I was talking about, I think back to the 1980s, even 1990s, like there seemed to be, and it could be a bad read, just so much more business, business people, business people flying in and out of Lambert to go to places or fly here for business meetings. And that's what I'm saying I feel like has changed. I'm not talking yeah. about the discourse. And that disappoints me. As a, so when I look at cities like people talk, like Stillman City, I go to Nashville and the Blues are playing the Predators and there's cranes everywhere. Indianapolis has gone from kind of being behind St. Louis to moving ahead of St. Louis. We agree. Um, I think our fragmentation... Um, has hurt us. I think if the, the getting back to this restructuring plan with nine boroughs and a, and pulling us together as a region, I think that would help us attract business. I think it would help us attract sports teams. Um, it would it just uh, absolutely improve our image. You know, we didn't get uh, Amazon. We're not even on the top, top 20. twenty list. You know, and that's too bad because uh, even though. We, our airport, I think, has been improved. I like the fact that it's a close-in airport. I mean, you go to Kansas City or Denver, yeah. oh my yeah, it's a half an hour to get At in least. to yeah. anything. Our, our airport's uh, 15 minutes from downtown, and, and uh, close-in, I think, is an advantage. Had we gotten Amazon, we would have had an airport hub. You know, yeah. but which comes first? That's well, a chicken egg yeah, 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 problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when Jim Talent was in here, he said he figured a place like Atlanta with the monstrous airport they have, or D.C. with the access to multiple airports, yeah. that region. I think two of the 20 finalists, or three of the 20 finalists, are all in the Beltway. Yeah. Uh, so along those lines with, with what we were talking about with the fragmentation, what do you think would get it to a point where it would be, quote-unquote, acceptable, i.e., people voting yes in the county to make something happen? Like, it's being discussed now, but I don't know if it actually is pragmatic to think it's actually going to happen and be voted yes on. I think Better Together has a role to play in advocating something. We've got my plan on the board, uh, on the table, uh, and... That plan needs some work. I mean, you know, I've told you a lot about it, and I'm convinced that we're the, that the skeleton is uh, solid. But uh, it needs some meat on the bones, and, and revenue and expenditures especially uh, has to be tweaked. Uh, 
The next thing would be, and I've been in to talk to um, Stanger, uh, the city, first of all, uh, the former mayor and the current mayor. And 75% of the people in the city of St. Louis are in favor of anything, any kind of amalgamation. I mean, the city is ready to move. Now, Stenger uh, is not. And I told him, I went in and met with him and uh, showed him the the plan. Uh, I don't know that he would oppose it. But Stenger is a key player because the vehicle is a board of freeholders again. Strangely Mm -hmm. enough... And, and this is another one you'll find interesting. Um, the Board of Freeholders was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I was gone to Washington when that happened, uh, and so I had to learn it after the fact. But um, the issue was uh, that we took non-property owners off of the Board of Freeholders. Freeholder is, by definition, a property owner. But the Supreme Court said, and, and it was uh, Father uh, Reinert. Shamel put Father Reinert on there. And then we were told by lawyers, you know, he's not a property owner. He's St. Louis U. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't own any property. <laughs> and so uh, Shamel took him off. Supreme Court said when you took him off, then that made it unconstitutional. So he, the Board of Freeholders vehicle is still there. You can just put it, it's not just property owners. And it'll still fly. That's nine people from the city, nine from the county, and one from the governor. And then uh, I said to Stanger, put me and my group in there as freeholders, and we'll drive this plan. And uh, he didn't oppose that, but I haven't heard anything about it. And I think he's got other fish to fry, and so there hadn't been any follow-through. But the idea would have to be to get Stanger and the— Mayor Cruson on board, and they would put together a board of freeholders, uh, and then we take a plan that's voted on by the people in the city and the county. I'm convinced that it'll, getting back to your point, I'm convinced it would pass in the city, and I think in the county it'll pass between the city uh, limits, the city border, and Lindbergh. I think mm-hmm. even though Clayton, our plan would would take Clayton and University City and go all the way to 70, which means they would take in 26 depressed munis. And that would be one municipality. But they've got the tax base and they've got the people who would be for this. That's a a more liberal, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. But a, a more progressive? regional, progressive, yeah. regional type of thinking. And, and so it is with Ladue would go north and, and take in part of Crevecore and St. Anne and some of the areas out there are going 70. Uh, now, when you get past, especially if you get past uh, the outer belt, right. two, right. Two, yeah, 270, um, then they've. That's a different state of mind out there. You know, we got ours. And we do, we, even though they'll come into the art museum, they'll come into zoo and the ball games and everything. They they like uh, where they are and don't mess with us. Uh, uh, that's the attitude. But I, I gave a talk to a, a group of ladies uh, at the Wednesday Club. And I started out, there were 200 of them. I started out by saying, how many of you live in the city? Well, there are four. 
And I said, how many of you live in the unincorporated area in St. Louis County? There's another four. And I said, how many of you live in a municipality and just love it? There, uh, 190 people raised their hand. I said, well, this is going to be a tough crowd. But when I was finished, you know, the questions and the attitude was, this is something we need to do. Yes. You know, so um, it's not as locked in. Even uh, they met on the other side of 270 mm-hmm. uh, on Ladue Road. You know, so um, it's not as locked in as as if you just... Uh, off the top of your head, say, well, or never. Never going to say no. Yeah. Yeah. Final thought. Tony Messenger, the Post-Dispatch, he was a guest recently. He said he thinks within 10 years it will happen. Now, he's, of course, of a merger perspective with the county and the city. What do you think is realistic in 10 years? Do you think what you're talking about is realistic in oh, 10 I years? Oh, I do 10 years. Uh, even, well, you know, well, I, I might not even be around in 10 years. I want to see it happen before. <laughs> so, no, I think... Uh, I think there's some movement um, even now. You know, I've met with some people in St. Charles. There's there's also a movement to do something about the racial divide. And some feel as though, uh, in fact, it used to be called leadership, and now it's called focus. And, and their main focus is on... Uh, African-Americans in North City and North County. Uh, and there's some money going into trying to improve that situation. My feeling is, and I met with some, that this restructuring should be a stepping stone toward that and not vice versa. Mm. And, you know, reasonable people can differ on that. But um, I think that this would lead the way because, you know, the the tax restructuring uh, putting putting some depressed areas in with uh, the the, uh, the better tax base and leadership all is a strengthening type of uh, mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that that would be a next step that uh, we can uh, put something like a borough plan together and then. Uh, Get the border freeholders on board and take it to a vote. I think I think it'd pass in the city and the county. Wow, that's great a thought. I'd love to see it happen. Thank you yeah. so much. Oh, we, and it's definitely ten years. No, I'd say five years. Five years. Yeah. Wow. I how like about, that. How about that, Gene? Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. So there it is. Our conversation, Gene McNary, and I talking it over. And do you have the same reaction that I have, which is, oh my. I can't believe what I just heard. Ah, I'm telling you, I didn't know. And and I, and I, I enjoyed life a little bit more when I didn't know what took place, that it was essentially executives in downtown St. Louis saying no to the plan to build the football Cardinal stadium at where Riverport, Hollywood Casino Amphitheater now, Riverport Amphitheater, now sits. Uh, And that also they were looking to bring an NBA team. And yeah, so that just really is awful to hear. You know, I mean, and, and what a defining moment. What an absolutely defining moment. He's at his office, gets a call from Mayor Vince Shamel, 
says we got to meet, and he knows it's a problem, and little as you know, it's going to blow up the plan. So, uh, like I said, I wish I could spin that optimistically. He's certainly still bullish on St. Louis. I just I can't help but focus on that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, um, his thoughts on the boroughs. I'm curious what you think about that, because a lot of people talk about wanting to see the city and county merge, but plenty of people in the county just want nothing to do with it. Uh, what do you think about the boroughs plan? Email me, tmckernan at insidestl.com. Also, his conversation on political discourse, immigration. I wasn't expecting to get into it, but we certainly did. Uh, you're always welcome to email me, tmckernan at insidestl.com. And here's a little fun fact. Now, you heard it over the course of the interview, but the fact that the guy is 82 years old and is studying genetics and medieval warfare tells you all you need to know about Gene McNary, doesn't it? Just constantly looking to learn and know more and keep the mind firing. So uh, I love that. And that, that was an interview going in. I was, I was going, okay, I've got three things I don't want to talk about. And if he looks at me and goes, I don't know who you are, plus I came in looking like I had just emerged from under an overpass. So if he looks at me and goes, yeah, I'm not going to give this guy more than 10 minutes, I wouldn't have blamed him. And then we wind up having this great conversation. So thank you to Gene McNary. Couldn't have enjoyed it more uh, and hope you did as well. Email at tmckernan at insidestl.com. Thank you to thehomeloanexpert.com. Thank you to James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agency. And thank you to Triad Bank and Gateway Buick GMC. Thank you to Nikki L, our videographer. And thank you to John Seymour, executive producer. I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners' or renters' coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today.